So the concept uh, of this class, terrain, um, this builds off of what I discussed yesterday, I think. I know you were there, and I think you were, so you were in my other class. So I mentioned some of this on the walk. It's how it always is for me. My, my sequence of classes throughout the week, although they might seem like they're all over the map, really there's a theme that runs through all of them. And, um, and, and being present for several of them usually helps many people start to coalesce these concepts and really feel it deeply. So what I, what I want to speak on today, which will dovetail again with some of what I've already spoken on, this concept of terrain. So one of the ways that you'll hear it referred to as a theory that juxtaposes germ theory. Terrain versus germ theory. Have you guys heard of that before? Okay, so I can give a little bit of background on that. Um, yesterday in my detoxification class, I kind of took a slight detour and broke that down a little bit, but I can revisit that today to help contextualize um, this relationship that I'm, I'm highlighting through this exploration, really for me, how this started, and I, I taught a class similar to this uh, at Winter Count back in, in February. Uh, that was an outpouring of my own exploration into terrain. So what does terrain mean and what does germ theory mean? That was my question. Now how do I form an opinion on these things uh, in order to, you know, I, I need to have some knowledge base rather than just listening to what somebody else says about it and say, oh, I like that opinion or I like that opinion. That can be useful, but for me, what is this, as I tend to go deeply into subjects, uh, peeling away the layers, looking at the fundamental meaning of the words, in fact. So that's how I started. And so I chose germ first because that's the overriding paradigm in terms of our healthcare system and the way that we are, are, are taught to view disease and how the entire medical establishment is uh, oriented towards disease. And not just the medical establishment, but the modern um, movement of herbalism or so-called alternative healing, uh, whether you're a naturopath or an herbalist or um, uh, a DO or chiropractor, the overriding orientation, um, with rare exception that is very marginal but is has been growing, is towards germ theory. That everyone bows down to germ theory even though they don't really know it. And I can say that because there really isn't the proof that anyone, no one can really provide the proof that they know it. That's what has been born out of my exploration. So I looked at germ and, okay, what does germ mean? Anybody know? Can you tell me what the word means? Something's out there and it's going to get you. It's made is that up, made up category that we don't even know what it all encompasses. It's just made up. That's an interesting word that you brought up. Yeah, so um, you mentioned germane. That could have some etymological associations in antiquity. And for me, going further back in antiquity to the source of, of, the, of the words that we use is very enlightening because of uh, something that um, well, I'll introduce now and may go into it more later is the concept of inversion, where um, good is turned around to mean bad, and bad to mean good. Up means down, and down means up. Such that if you do it repeatedly, then everyone says, yeah, I just got down, and now I'm gonna sit up. And that's how it is, right? It's just everything's flipped around. I'm a woman, you're a man. 
because I woke up this morning and said that that's the case. All these kinds of things happening in our world today that are illustrative of this mechanism of inversion, so as to remove any authentic any authenticity of our experience based on the integrity of the foundation from which we've all risen. So, in relationship to the word germ, what do we call the seed of a man or a woman? It's the germ. Germination. Germination. And then in terms of seeds from plants, seeds that take, you know, they come into that moment of growth and transition into a new stage of development, they're germinating. It's the germplasm that is referred to. The seed itself is the germplasm. That's a term that means that, that potential for life to grow and that, that seed has within it the knowledge accumulated by its ancestors. That is within us, within our germplasm, the creative powers that each man and woman is endowed with. Now that could mean the creation of a new life form as we procreate and make children, or in any other way that same, the essence of that energy within us is that which creates anew, that responds to unique situations in our life and creates something new. So, the idea of germ as the fount of life that's directly connected, you could say where the solid or the material connects with the essential or immaterial or spiritual of our life is, is that aspect of germ within us. And so that term, as sacred as that, yeah, I should say that that's a term that seems to be as sacred as anything in the material world. Absolutely. Because what else? What else could endow us with that but our Creator? The possibility for us to be creators. So they've taken that simple term, simply sacred term, germ, and inverted it in such a way that we are now afraid of it. And we've, as a consequence, lost touch with the true essence of that meaning. As it was intended or created, I don't claim to know um, or I don't know who might know where, you know, where the first, when the germ, word germ was first spoken or conceived. That's, that's a big subject right there. So, nonetheless, we now collectively believe that germs are something to be afraid of. So, we've taken that word and it's been like spray painted over, you know, or like, you know, vinyled over with a whole new meaning. So it's still germ, you know, that you can't change its nature, but you can fool us enough to think that it's something different than it, what it is. Now that's a, that's a reflection on us as well, because we carry that. So if, if our concept of ourselves, of being essentially creators, is glossed over to the point that we're afraid of the creation of life around us, and such that we will relinquish our sovereignty and be submissive to any dictates so that we may believe ourselves to be safe, then mission is accomplished from the perspective of those that might wish to uh, subvert, or at least let's, let's be really open-minded about it, that have challenged us to assert our sovereignty. Yeah. So the mission accomplished in terms of uh, 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 um, a formidable challenge, 
has been presented and then let's say that we have failed to meet that challenge insofar as we have relinquished our identity as a consequence of this facade of in inversion of the truth on the surface okay so that to me once I re once that was revealed to me in terms of the word germ I said okay that says a lot right there this uh, more than mere coincidence because I also have a backlog of other examples where inversion is overt and deep profound but then like I just explained is it any more profound than that can it be any more profound than that perhaps but that's deeply profound in my in my view at the to the core of our being and our capacity to create and what brought us into creation <laughs> the seed of life okay so I set that aside and let that be okay I don't really need to explore the minutiae of germ theories where my mind was at that time I'll just let that be and now let's look at terrain so I looked um, because of my ancestry I wanted to look into the into the etymology of this in the Irish language I didn't find anything in particular uh, that I could discover in terms of germ but for terrain the word terrain derives from the Latin terra which derives directly from Irish, Tyr. Tyr means land in Irish. And from there we get terra in Latin. In my view, Latin derives from Irish, not vice versa. And in Irish, terrain is tyrrhen. It's a two, it's a compound, well it's a phrase, a two word phrase that uh, roughly translates into our concept of terrain. But where our concept of terrain is relatively two-dimensional or superficial, the concept of terrain is much broader. So how I discovered that was I looked at the word tir and rean. So what does rean mean? R-A-O-N. Rean. That is a two-part word, but before I get into that, uh, rean itself means track or path. Spanish to camino to sendero the path that you walk in your life so now if we just look at those two words we have the path that one walks across the earth I cannot walk the path that you've walked you've already walked as far as you've walked that's yours and yours alone no one's ever walked for the spinning of the earth and the movement of the earth around the Sun every footstep you've taken has been completely unique to your life and will never be taken again for the composite of who you are on the earth. You know, even your ancestors, they lived lives that continued from each step and then brought you into being. And likewise, your children can never walk your steps because your steps are behind theirs. So each step that each individual takes on this earth is uniquely theirs. And so your terrain has everything to do with your walk across the earth. Now that second phrase, uh, the second word, ran, is a two-part word in Irish. Ra is an Irish word for the sun. You might also recognize that that's used in, in Egypt. That's a whole other discussion. But Ra is the orb that exists. We, do, we say sun and we have solar, um, you know, helios, but that's still Greek. We don't have many words for the sun because it's just we have a material we have a materialistic view of reality. 
at least that's what it's been boiled down. It's been homogenized and pasteurized. Pasteur, germ theory. But we'll get into that later. So we have Ra, the orb in the sun. The, or, the, the sun as an orb in the sky. And that is the Irish, uh, that is one of at least a dozen words for the sun in Irish. On is another word for the sun in Irish. But on now is indicative of the energetic experience or the energy that the sun transmits to the human being as they walk their track across the earth. As you walk across the earth beneath the sun, that which the sun holds as, as the creator, we could look at it, and it, what it transmits to us as we take initiative and walk across the earth, that which our ancestors have left for us, the, the treasure chests, you know, the gifts that they left for us that we need to discover and actualize in our life, is that energy of on that activates that with, within us, our heritage. You could say that, you know, what they talk about with vitamin D. Vitamin D is created primarily, attain vitamin D levels within our body, you could say, as a majority through our uh, receptivity of sun's rays. We get most of our vitamin D from the sun, is what I'm trying to say. You can get it from food as well, but that's stored solar energy in these foods. Plant, mushroom, animal, primarily, primarily animal foods that we can then ingest. But it's not the same thing as getting it from the sun. So as we walk across the earth on our path beneath the sun, asserting our sovereignty and stepping into what is ours to, to give, to express into the world, we experience our own terrain, or we make our own terrain. So we are, we have received sort of a, a template from our ancestors and the Creator in which we can operate and express this terrain. And then we also have our own initiative, our own will, and our, our own, you know, our courage, our heart that we have to put into it. And that makes it our terrain uniquely what it is. So to the extent that we meet that challenge and to the extent that we've been, what we've been gifted from our ancestors and what the sun has to, to offer to activate that creates our the picture of our vitality. Our resiliency towards whatever challenges are in our midst, whether they're cultural, you know, social, economic, um, ecological, the toxins that we talked about yesterday, our, our tendency to uh, submit to temptations, so many different things are all a part of our own unique terrain, which will be laden with challenges as well as opportunities for growth. And those you can see is one and the same thing. If not also abundance that comes as a consequence of that terrain that has been, uh, that we, that's been bequeathed to us and then we activate and expand or enrich from our own courageous action. So here we are with 
terrain versus germ. Is there really a versus necessary? Is what I came to ask. We're in like in many situations in the world around us right now. We're there's a a debate or a challenge or an antipathy, a battle that's presented to us and we must choose one side or the other. One might argue that we are tricked into choosing one side or the other, baited, tempted into choosing one side or the other because of how it may orient with our belief system or what we presume to be our belief system, which maybe has nothing to do with our own terrain. Has our have our ancestors bequeathed to us this this um, this dogma or this doctrine that we are now adhering to? Is it something that the sun is activating within us as a source of our internal creative essence that now makes us want to uh, loot and burn, for example, in response to some political decision, or make us wave a flag? for some jurisdiction, you know, almost halfway around the world. Is that why we're doing it? Is it something from our own inner terrain, or is it from the dictates of the overlord, so to speak, that are responsible for the inversion in the first place? So do we even know our terrain, or are we simply being complicit in this purported battle that we are obligated, supposedly, to choose one side or the other. And there's only one choice. <laughs> choose one side or the other, but you know, authorities are telling us there's only one choice, because if you don't choose this side, then you are effectively a bad person. So what hole does that put you into? Versus choosing an opportunity to walk the path that your ancestors have provided for you in, insofar how you see the world from within and taking in the essence of the creative power from the sun and also the support, material support that we get from the earth to hold us up and embracing that for all that it is and connecting with that in the most deeply heartfelt way that we possibly can. Does the earth, has the earth ever asked me to choose sides in a political debate? No, never. Have these plants that I've worked with for decades ever you know, encouraged me to wave a flag or a banner as my self-identity? No. It's been about being accountable for the feelings that I have inside, whether painful or joyous or whatever it may be, and having the courage to em embrace that and express that as may be necessary. That to me is terrain. To be as authentic as you possibly can be on that path of self-realization. So I meant to say something, um, and this may be a moot point, I don't know, but I meant to uh, start off this discussion by inviting, and it may, may come up as I as we uh, as we explore other related topics, but um, invite from the group here any challenges 
to things that I say that might uh, not just for the point of chal challenging me, but if if you have doubts, if there's something that I'm saying that you have doubts about, you know, ask ask a ask a question and um, you know put me to the test. Let's see if what I'm saying really you know holds water in in a variety of circumstances. Because I, I welcome that challenge, uh, not just to prove that I'm right, but also to, because um, I do that for myself. You know, if, okay, this sounds good in this scenario. What about, you know, under this context, does it still work? Because something that is truly vital and truly holistic um, and embraces this concept of terrain, as I'm conceptualizing it here, I think must hold water under all circumstances. I have a question for you. Please. Did you homeschool your child? She is in the process of being homeschooled now. <laughs> but I would say that she's always been homeschooled <clears throat> as a supplement. Right. <laughs> you know, the tradition in my family <clears throat> um, when I was really young was memories from the kitchen table and being taught things. So that's where schooling happened with my grandmother and with my, with my aunt and sometimes my uncle and my grandfather when he was around going on activities with him. So I, I've always done that with my daughter and share thoughts with her and get her impressions on things and she knew every, every plant and every animal and track and food and medicine in our local environment before preschool age, or by preschool age. <laughs> She's forgotten more than most adults would know. And, you know, maybe I overdid it because she's not so interested. <laughs> in it, or maybe that's just who she is. But I knew that at some point I couldn't, um, I couldn't give that back to her later. You know, to give that to someone when they have that, provide that experience, you know, that I don't know what's, what that's going to turn into for her as she, as she grows, but, you know, now that she's 11, like, I can't, can't do that for her now, you know, she's, her nervous system was forming, and the first food that I ever gave her to eat was, was wild foods, you know, we picked something from the bank of the Arroyo, and you can still see her little, <laughs> see her legs, like, chomping on it and falling down her chin, and, oh, that's good, Papa. <laughs> You know, and she just barely knew anything other than um, mother's milk. So I wanted the earth to also be her mother, for her to understand that. That's her. And she has her own home place on the earth um, where we did a ceremony uh, six months after she was born. So she knows that that's always her place to go home to. Wherever she may be on, on the earth, at least in her mind, she can go back to that place and know that she has a home on the earth. On the earth regardless of what happens to me or her mother. So if there were a community of people that banded together to protect the natural freedoms of everybody in the community, would you wave a flag for that? Mm. That's a good question. So... Every journey starts with a first step, right? And um, just like the telephone game, you, know, you start. You think you're all going the same place, and next thing you know, somebody says, "No, I know the right way is this way." No, it's that way. And so at that point, you know, like if you're not quite sure, you might be following the flag because you're supposed to follow the flag. But then, instead of critical thinking, so that's that's the trick. Um, 
but one of the first things that I thought of early on in this, this new era, let's call it early 2020, is that I realized we were missing a fundamental set of core principles that we could all return to. Now maybe some people feel they have that, good, bad, or indifferent. Maybe they feel they have that and that's what they're that's the flag that they're standing by or you know the the inner sanctum that they're defending. And I feel like that's in our past, but I feel like if I did a collective poll of of the wide public that I would get very little to zero, you know, um, validation of those ancient core principles. So I feel like we're we're at a stage where we're kind of we're set adrift or in doldrums, lost at sea, and we have we really have to go within, use our our wits and our and re rehabilitate our connection with the earth to recover those, and maybe in a new way because. It's not the same as a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand years ago. But, you know, the core, I think still the core um, essence of our roles as humans on the earth possibly couldn't be different. Or, I mean, possibly isn't different. Maybe it could be different. And if the earth is changing, then it might require a massive change from us. And in that case, you know, we really don't need to be responsible to the past. We just need to show up and be present right now. Okay, what do you want us to do? What should we do, Mother Earth? You know, if you're running the show and you're 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 going through your transition, then how do we how do we acclimate to that? You know, I think that's the question we'd all have to be asking ourselves. So that's why I'm not a very staunch, um, you know, flag flag waver in terms of like this is the way it has to be this way. But as I described Tiran, I feel that is the way. And I would hope that at least this group here, the understanding of what I described in that is that it, it accounts for what each person authentically brings. It doesn't exclude anyone. Maybe each individual is not yet adept at living an authentic life. As such, they may seek to defend the flag in, in compensation for on a living an authentic life. And I'm not saying I'm living a 100% authentic life either, but I'm, I'm oriented towards it and making an attempt to do so as best as I can. So, so how have you, when you're, the Pledge of Allegiance, do you, have you taught your daughter? What have you taught her? Do you stand for the Pledge of Allegiance? Do you put your hand over your heart? Do you recite it? Do you have a different option? Do you sit? What have you taught her as far as the Pledge of Allegiance? I have not. I have not. So I've gone through my own process since her, during her lifetime. Um, I recognized that I had some seeds of corruption within my own heart and mind that through influences that I allowed to allowed in to corrupt my mind in that way that I would have been open to rejecting that because of the narrative so without going into details and I've recovered I feel a good amount of that 
to such that I'm not afraid to put the flag up and say, you know, I, I, I recognize in the context of this world that we're in right now, where whatever freedoms remain are still respected by some, or at least um, hoped for <laughs> by some. But I've also had my own visions about what this transition means for, for that flag. And standing by that flag may be adherence to something that has run its course. Not to say that I'm I'm gonna, you know, shift to become, you know, uh, a saluting member of the Chinese Communist Party because now they're the major force in town. It's not about that at all. But maybe something else, something within this edifice that has been created and sustained and brought to power over these 200 some years, there's an element of corruption within it. And it may not be possible to maintain the integrity of the edifice as it appears on the outside, i.e. the flag, without continuing to succumb to that corruption. That the corruption may be so deep such that we need a new, we need a new symbol even. Something that's more reflective of the hearts and minds of the people, the authentic hearts and minds of the people. What does the terrain dictate? You know, right now I think the terrain is corrupt, and unfortunately, um, too many, too many, too many signs point back to the flag. How many have waved that flag and are essentially corrupt in their hearts? That's the problem. But I recognize probably by numbers, probably by numbers amongst the common people, there's more people with good hearts that stand by the flag than those that don't. That's the tricky part and that's where we've been divided. But I think too there's a lot that we don't understand. There's a lot beneath it all that we think we're waving the flag for a certain thing and it stands for this and that and this and that. But when you go back into like history and things that have happened, you find out that like the flag we wave now is a war flag. It's not a peace flag. And there is a peace, there is a United States peace flag that was flown right. for three years. Right. And that was it. And so there's a lot of these things that happen in history that we were never taught that we don't understand. So we think we're holding that flag up and we think we know what it means. And we're standing by those principles, but that's not the same thing it means to everybody. Yeah, that's a good point, and I think that ties into what I was saying about the terrain and germ. I wanted to go deep into the etymology, what can I figure out for myself so that I can see it from the inside out, and not just say, I like this person's opinion, I like that person's opinion. But what does it mean for me? Going deep to the heart, like if I could go back to where the words were first spoken and judge that, since I didn't create this, and like you're pointing out, go back to when the flag was created and understand the spirit behind that, and if, if we've been told a certain story, but there's an underlying truth that actually it implicates war and our aggression onto the world, then do we really want to stand behind that? Because a lot of people are for defending liberties and rights of freedom, which I would stand for. But if it's about you know conquering for the sake of you know benefiting a few while 
massive amounts of young people are ritualistically sacrificed on the battlefield, then that's something I think we need to put an end to. And what does that flag mean to like Iraqi people or like various places where the US military has been? I don't think it means the same thing. It's mixed. I have a lot of military friends. Been in, been all over those places. It's mixed. Just like it's mixed here. I think when we wave that flag, it may mean something to us. What does it mean to other people? What is it we're trying to achieve? I like this idea of being open to. Let's look at what we're really doing. Let's, let's cautiously make a choice that this is what I'm going to Rather than a small Something that's been happening. Not that something's been happening that's bad, but we need to make a choice that we're understand. Once so much inversion has been, yeah, has replaced so much of the authentic life and perpetuated over generations and generations and generations and now moves at such a rapid pace due to internet and social media and all of the corrupt malfeasance that is part and parcel to all of that technology. It's a lot to tease out, you know. You know, once a knot has so many rope, uh, some rope has so many knots in it, it, you might consider doing away with it and starting over again. That's why I say, like, maybe, maybe there are, there's a greater abundance of people who have, you know, truth in their hearts, however vague that might be, who stand by the flag. There, all the latent misconceptions might still be too great to really benefit the individual in the long term because they're still complicit in something that is otherwise undermining their sovereignty as a consequence of them standing behind it. So I'm saying that because of the inversion. And if people don't know about the inversion, then that makes it even more insidious and, and more detrimental to each individual, regardless of how well-intentioned they are. So, I was thinking this, I think, kind of goes with what you're asking, but when I start thinking about this, I think there's always this duality thing. There's always these different sides that are fighting for balance, right? And when you talk about walking your own terrain, it makes me think, okay, well, that's sovereign, that's me, that's my path. And this balance between being an individual and being a collective or a community or a multiple, you know, the one and the group. And I mean, it happens everywhere. You know, we get married and we're constantly kind of going back and forth between, I don't want to lose myself, but I also want to be one with you, but you're an individual and I'm an individual and we need to come together, but we need to maintain our separateness. Does that make sense? And I think too, like, and so I guess, Sometimes people hold up that, well, if you're walking your own path, you're being selfish and you're only out for yourself and you're not out for the good of everyone. <laughs> and I think that's put out there by society too. That's part you know, of the We're impression. a community. We have to do everything together. We have to be out for everyone else. And so maintaining that balance too, I don't know. That's the beauty that. of the two-part phrase in Irish that means terrain. If you say terrain, do you think about an individual? It's like what's out there, right? It's the landscape. But Tiran is your path across the earth. So it encompasses the earth, but also 
highlights that an individual walks their own unique path. So it's both. Right, it's always both. And that's why I think core principles and concepts are so essential. Everything must be measured by the core principles and concepts with a degree of freedom within to express and explore. And that's what we've lost and that's what's been disintegrated. So I think we have to realize the trauma before we can heal it. The trauma of the individual and collectively the trauma of you know, the cultural disintegration that has happened, that effectively happened through the removal of people from their homelands and the annihilation of their language. I think all of that is core to all of our heritage. And then going back further, collective human trauma that is a consequence of disasters, global disasters on the earth. That that is very, very rarely mentioned. There's one author that I know of, Michael Tassarian, that, that looks at the significance of that. So with all of that latent underneath, conflict becomes inevitable regardless of which flag you start under. Because yeah. everybody has different meanings to it, to what it means. So I, I believe that where it begins for each of us is becoming accountable for our own Turan. Because if, no matter what movement I would choose to start or become a part of, if I have not yet you know, begun taking the steps to know my own Turan, to uh, claim sovereignty on that path, then I am prone to fall prey to all the pitfalls and challenges and obstacles that everyone before me has as a consequence of their, their, their misconceptions due to the trauma that they've suffered or the continual trauma that we suffer as a consequence of the inversion. Meaning the dissonance that is manifest as a consequence of having good intentions within one's heart. I pray to do the best thing that I can for myself and the people around me today to have courage and so forth. How many times have you said something like that for yourself and then you go out and then you hammer somebody because it's right and it feels so good. But then you went directly against your expressed purpose and intent. Why? Because you're a bad person? No. I believe it's the unconscious manifestation of that trauma that has not yet been fully experienced. So we carry it through because there's a culture of trauma acceptance or enabling to be, you know, codependent within that level of trauma. So there's a, a level of dysfunction that's acceptable. And within certain uh, genres or areas of culture, you have more or less of that from people on the street that are just getting drunk like there's a huge you know bandwidth of acceptable dysfunction you know? and then at certain areas there's there's less acceptable but it's still present which creates even more tension so understanding one's terrain and all of this again becomes it turns inward to the accountability of not just the path that you're walking forward but what you carry on your backpack from what you've experienced already. So the impression that you leave on your next step is a consequence of what you've carried from the past. If you're carrying a 500 pound backpack, you're gonna leave a much different impression on, on your path than if you were traveling light. And so we have to recognize that regardless of what we've turned off, 
in our minds or turned off in our hearts, that there's still something present with us that we carry. And that carries a resonance or an, or an energy in, into, the, into the present moment. And that ties in with what I was talking about yesterday. So I'll, I'll briefly branch off there and put that into context because we're looking at ancestral and then our own autonomy and sovereignty and what we've discussed so far. And then in regards to the, the health of the system, what is the system? The system being the earth itself and then each of us walking on the earth as an integrated system that requires wholeness to operate in optimal, you know, to function at, in, 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 its, in its optimal way. Meaning that we can pull in all the nutrients that are available to us and that we need, we can utilize those well, and that we can excrete wastes effectively and efficiently, or toxins for that matter. Wastes that come as a byproduct of toxins that are in our environment. So what we discussed yesterday are a variety of, of toxins that are in our environment. Um, here, uh, I might think of the first thing is like any chemicals that were sprayed on this land. If we're walking around barefoot or um, drinking the water, you know, they could be present. You know, toxins that were sprayed a couple weeks ago or last month or last year or last decade. These inorganic compounds can remain for a long time, be very difficult for marginally healthy lands to process. And this is a margin, as, as green as it is, like moisture is good, and there's a, probably a nice ionic um, you know, negative charge coming from the earth that is good for our structure, but it's not a very vital soil and it's very compacted and probably not super nutrient dense unless maybe they added um, uh, added nutrients yeah yeah <laughs> Syn synthetic uh, NPK or whatever but even then they don't add a whole profile they just add this yeah want to maximize growth yeah, rather than optimize yeah so anyway I'm just doing you know quick off the cuff what might be toxic in our immediate environment um, and if there's anything being sprayed in the air you know closer yard to urban areas probably more likely that is but who knows I've really not well studied at that but I understand there's at least 10 um, compounds or minerals that are being sprayed into the air as a means of blocking out the Sun so how does that relate to what I discussed earlier in regards to terrain you know, by walking across the earth to receive the sun's rays so that it activates within us what what we what we carry from our ancestral heritage. How many people walk around and say, I don't know who I am, I don't know what to do. I don't really know who I am. So there's the an internal layer of doubt and cloudiness that I believe comes from the inversion. You tell people enough lies and half-truths and... Um, juxtaposed conflicting ideas and they just shut off like the last couple of years right how many things are how many logical fallacies can one person digest before they just shut off and say I just can't I just can't do anymore so people's cognitive function and critical thinking functions effectively get shut shut down if not shut off entirely how does that affect what we can receive from the sun as well. Our ability to be 
upgraded or updated or move into the transformations that we are otherwise in time and space physically ready for. But maybe our minds and our emotions and our hearts are lagging behind such that we become disintegrated within ourselves. And that gradually starts to break down the system. So it's a slow, a slow, um, slow acting toxin. Just the lack of self-awareness. Like self-awareness is a part of our self-sustaining order within our body to begin to shut off our awareness due to birth trauma, early childhood trauma, educational, the trauma of the educational system, other institutions, religious and, and military and corporate, all of this successive um, tra traumatization, coin a phrase, of, of the individual that widens this chasm between physical development and mental, emotional, spiritual development, such that the heart itself is rendered inferior, if not, um, you know, auxiliary, if not um, entirely useless, <laughs> or entirely inappropriate in our culture. You know, you're not measured by your heart-mind awareness, but by your intellectual capacity. The ones that are materially rewarded in our culture heavily favor this at the consequence of that. Which, what I'm saying is that that's a sort of low-grade toxicity on the individual because of that imbalance, that disharmony that exists within the individual. Somatic intelligence becomes downgraded because the, I believe the heart-mind is what's intimately connected with our... Uh, it's like the bridge, the intimate bridge between our conscious mind and the somatic intelligence. Somatic intelligence meaning that we have a body that through the Creator's wisdom has has this capacity to self-maintain under certain conditions. You know, we don't have to figure it out. And in fact, for the last century and a half of people tinkering with it and dissecting it, they still don't know. They still don't know. There's so many things that happen in the human body that nobody can explain. And, all, and so many of the fundamental explanations are bogus. That the heart, heart is not a pump. The nervous system works in some other way than they're described because it would take much longer for things to happen than it, than it does without going into the details. So you're saying we just have to look at the conditions and keep the conditions proper and the system maintain itself? Is that what you're saying? For the human body, it yes, if we give it proper conditions for optimal integrity. So what we're also what we're recognizing yesterday is that because of the intense toxification of our environments, that's become very difficult. And one could argue, and some some have, and they've influenced me and my thinking to accept this view that the so-called pandemic of illness over the last couple of years is a consequence of that. And I'm also framing in in a broader sense, these aspects of our ancestral heritage, our mental, emotional, internal environment, and all of the standards that have been set in our society 
that have kind of been brought into culmination alongside the radio wave frequency, cell phone towers, microwave, and so forth, as well as you know the blocking of our connection with our creator through these chemicals in the sky, and then we ingest those, that's even more, you know, through our airways and maybe through our food and water, that's even more toxification of the body that gives us more burden. It's a further and further distraction away from our higher calling to become fully integrated in our heart, mind, body, and spirit. And if this earth is in a transitional phase and we are stewards of the earth, don't we need to be hands on deck? Rather than, you know, sitting in our bedroom playing video games, binging on Netflix, which is nothing but, you know, for the most part, propaganda designed by descendants of Nazi Germany to infiltrate our hearts and minds and disintegrate our culture even more so. So in that sense, I mean, just a quick tie back around to what I said, say it briefly, uh, you know, why is there so much emphasis on breaking down America? Yes, there's a lot of power here materially, but I believe because of the relative environment, as many things as I'm saying, the human being is so powerful and so resilient, there's yet still enough room here, especially in rural America, you might say, where people are not so intoxicated <laughs> with, with the... Um, but the inversion that enables them to give up their freedom so easily. Yeah, because nothing can penetrate us unless we allow it to penetrate us. So just going well to lectures that I wouldn't normally go to and hearing other views, and I had my daughter, who's 16, come to one of them, and it was very, like, end of the world if it bought And it was like, oh, gosh, but I'm glad she heard it because I don't speak that way to her. So I wanted her to feel what fear felt like from this person, that that could happen. And when we go home, I'll, we'll have a discussion about it. How did that How did that set with you? And she's also been raised that nothing, nothing can harm you unless you allow it to harm you, which is falling victim to what you're talking about, indoctrination. And, uh, yeah, so it's been interesting. So what you're saying relates to my... My experience when I went to Ireland um, for the second time, and I did so as a calling, as a spiritual calling, that I felt my my ancestors were were calling me there. The land was calling me there, and I immersed myself for about a month and a half in the off season. There's nobody around. I was by myself, cold, rainy weather, and I'd be out on the landscape all over Ireland, wherever I was being called to go. And I received a lot of information from the land, from the ancient sites, from the oak trees, and then became exposed to the information of other people that came long before me. And this man, Michael Sarin, who I mentioned, is from Northern Ireland, and he studied a lot of these people and digested a lot of that, so I could learn from him as well as listen to the others, early 20th century, 19th century, who were recalling the ancient history. And so I began to see more clearly the power that was there. So I'll take a step back for a moment. For me, my relationship to that ancestry was one of shame for a long time. Um, I, I gleaned that, I think, from within the family, osmotically, and then also just overriding themes, whether I saw it in, in Hollywood, so to speak, or just observing other people from my Irish, that shared Irish ancestry, 
you know, drunkenness and, um, you know, just kind of shame of being not good enough that kind of like Native Americans would associate with today, like we're, we're lower on the, you know, socioeconomic ladder and um, we're good for fighting and good for drunkenness and maybe make a good warrior here or a good storyteller but it just wasn't an honorable position in society I'm not articulating it well right now but I think you get, you get what I mean so I had gone so far as to kind of uh, disavow myself of my Irish ancestry that I even uh, thanks to the corrupting uh, influence of Carlos Castaneda and his books started to even deny outright my ancestry and replace it with something else following some of his suggestions and his books and so that was the epitome of being inauthentic and not being accountable and certainly not walking my terrain or trying to discover my terrain but hiding from it and trying to fake something else so inversion manifest and thinking that I was doing the right thing but fortunately um, through humility and exposure to mother nature and, and the people of the earth that um, that had a close relationship to mother earth I started to see another way and started to regain my own humility and through that felt a part of various Native American cultures and felt a part of families and then it came to being uh, closely associated with a couple of Navajo families over many years and feeling um, somewhat a part of their culture but as I started to understand more about their culture wouldn't you know it my Irish culture started to like peek its way into the periphery like without me seeking it it's like just somehow would come in and I started to see like joke with my Navajo oh yeah my ancestors were raising sheep and making fry bread long before you guys were you know and things like that like I saw it I said it jokingly at first but I was starting to think about it like oh, wait a second how can I value what they do just because they're Native Americans or they live a certain way but then I started well there's actually my ancestors lived in dispersed hamlets like like the Navajo and they had clans and they were warriors and they actually yeah they were cowboys before they even knew what cows were over here and horsemen and all, all this kind of stuff so I started to see like I was looking at the Navajo culture and then it just disappeared I was like it's not that it's not that much different so that really turned my heart in a way that was very healing for me and allowed me to accept what I could and then I could more uh, readily go through the pain of, of combing through my own cultural shame and in so doing you know I got past the shame and then the glory was behind it and that's really what came forth for me as I, I went almost ritually to Ireland to put down the sword on behalf of my ancestors that had fought for so long as mercenaries and just fought with themselves because that's all they knew was to fight. That was part of the inversion. Uh, people that might otherwise be healers or powerful in their own creation, you could subvert and invert that through shame and guilt and turn them into weapons of destruction. 
And what's better than turn them on themselves as weapons of destruction, and you just put that on repeat. And now I see, looking back, I see, oh wow, in recent history, that's what the Navajo have become to themselves. We taught them that. Scots-Irish, you know, certain people that were frontiersmen and, and infantrymen, like, we knew that pretty well. No wonder we were so good at doing it to them because we hadn't yet wake, woken up to that amongst ourselves. Because that had been done to us for hundreds of years, if not a thousand years or more. Granted at a slower pace, but still there and deep within us. So I went back through the inspiration of an elder in my life, see directly into my ancestral lineage to put that sword down back on the earth and as I did that what started to come up for me was the richness and power of the culture there not again not just through my what I learned directly from the land and the ancient sites and, and the natural wor world there but also the voices of Ireland that spoke about these remnants of the ancient past and what I understood was that as powerful as it was with all its integrity and its benevolence that resonated highly with earth and her natural state and our creator and what it would endow within us in a benevolent way it could not have been corrupted except from within somebody inside of that culture got a whisper in their ear that said hey it could be better would you like this to do would you like to have more power wouldn't you like to be better than so-and-so over there wouldn't you like to have his wife or wouldn't you like to have more gold than this person come this way I've got something so it's almost like we reach this crescendo culturally as a people where you're benevolent and had integrity and honor and spread that across the globe to uplift humans to this place but then I guess because of the cyclical nature of reality, like we had to fall from that grace and it had to happen in that way where somebody within, you know, the first the first heart was corrupted. They said, yeah, I, I could do better than this. I don't need that. They start to think of themselves as other and that they fall prey to the temptation of never. And therefore they start selling each other out one by one. And that, you know, because of the tremendous integrity and strength of that, you know, it took hundreds, if not thousands of years for that to really culminate. We see so much of that in all history. cultures and societies. Yeah. That's the story of history. But I, I wonder, to, to, to interject something, um, what are, what have we been told about history? I think, you know, this is my personal view, but that a lot of our recent, in the last 2,000 years, for example, has been largely corrupted to obscure this reality that I feel that I uncovered, not unto myself, but others have as well, that Ireland has an epicenter for, quite possibly, and what they brought throughout the whole world, the Audi, the Audian people. Now, what, what term has been more inverted in the 20th century than that term? I mean, you can't say Aryan to some, someone of Jewish heritage without making their skin crawl, you know, unless they know something about this. But Adi is to be exemplary in your knowledge and honor and benevolence and righteousness in the truest form. Like to be just and benevolent. 
and that story carries throughout the entire that's the terrain of my ancestry if not our ancestry and what it brought to the earth and now we're viewed at look at what's happening in our culture you know we must carry shame and guilt for our name our flag our skin color our heritage everything now you could say that there's some justice in that for the way that we've been corrupted and that we've fallen from grace and have not acted with benevolence and justice and honor and integrity. Not to say that, not to cast everyone into the same lot, but I would say to some extent we're all complicit and to a degree responsible in that. And so far as we went to bed, you know, you know without any awareness <laughs> of that, not, not being aware that we were complicit in, in this, you know, corruption that I initially spoke of behind, behind the flag. In, in, to the extent we are innocent and naive, I should say, we are innocent to the extent that we are naive, but in that moment that we're no longer naive, i.e. the moment when something doesn't feel quite right about that to me. We've all had those moments, but then do we have the courage to allow that to grow within us and to inspect that with courage? That's walking the realm. That's walking the path. Because our Father is gifting us with that opportunity to come into that awareness where something lacks integrity, something lacks justice, something lacks honor. So I'm now complicit in the injustice and the dishonor and disingenuousness when I turn a blind eye to it. And now so many people have lived in the stench of that corruption for so long and for forever that they're now now they've become not just complicit but perhaps you might say for lack of a better term agents of evil and that they seek to corrupt others and to bring them down and to be you know agents of destruction that are not moving from a place of benevolence, righteous justice, honor, and integrity, but some distorted concept that has nothing to do with what's in their heart or what has come to them, you know, through the cultivation of their own tiran. But it's the organism is the structure and integrity of the organism is corrupted, such that all that comes through it is corruption. So it requires a tremendous cleansing. And that's what we were talking about yesterday, is detoxification. So the organism, our bodies, and the earth, our bodies are part of the earth, the earth is evidently going through a cleansing state. And because of the ways, I would say, the resonance or the dissonance of which we've now lived on the earth. And speaking more succinctly about our bodies, as our cells lose their integrity, and the integrity is based on the state of the water within our cells. That water um, has been identified in its highest form of integrity as a fourth state, not vapor, not ice, not water, but a colloidal form. Have you guys heard of this before? Structured water? No, I want to hear more. And so it is not liquid per se, but it's more like a gel. 
and in that gel form, all components of the cell are optimized in their integrity for optimal function, i.e. as an antenna, in a, as a, an electromagnetic antenna that we are, this is where the resonance comes in, where I talk about resonance. By being on the earth, close to the earth, we're close to that source, material source of our nutritional support and our structural integrity, that's the yin, as the Chinese call it. And then receiving, you know, that's, that's all that we had, that would be imbalanced, but now we have the sun also, the positive solar rays, right? Rayon, where we get sun's rays. Rayon, catching the rayon into our bodies, and that's sending out chemical signals as a consequence of that light and electromagnetic connection, and it's manifesting as vitamin D molecules, for example, that then help uh, manifest or express what we call epigenetics our ancestral genetic heritage that's been passed down to us, i.e. our resilience against disease or the manifestation of gifts. How many families do you know that have you know musical talents within the family? We just call that the genetics, but there's a variety of ways in which that can be manifest. And we're talking about the structural integrity of the cell in relationship to the sun and the earth. That it's that simple. Just let that settle for a second without saying many more words, because that's something that we've been, that's been taught to us by um, by indigenous cultures, but maybe we think it's too simple. It can't be that simple. But again, that's an aspect of the inversion that has corrupted our minds to think that there must be something else, but that something else is something that we never really know, and that is not our experience on the earth. It's something that's dictated to us. Dictated through us, through the dictates of the priest class, in a sense, or those that hold the degrees, the arcane language, and can transmit their theory to us as doctrine, i.e. from the medical establishment. So this is something, I'm going to get a quick drink of water. something that we were speaking about yesterday um, in relation to this integrity of the system, colloidal form of, of the cells, and what breaks that down is the lack of or the, the dissonance in the electromagnetic fields or the excessive toxification of the cells such that when, once the cells become overtly toxic, the amount of nutrients that are taken in by the cell are overwhelmed by the toxic substances that the cells are exposed to, or their ability to ex process and excrete these, such that the cell liquefies, goes from that colloidal state to a liquid state. And basically that's a, at first, as I understand it, a means by which the cell can flush itself out, but now it's in a more sensitive um, disequilibrium you know so if more toxins come basically that's the, that's how that cell gets destroyed or gets corrupted and then cancer grows 
there's a man named Dr. Tom Cowan whose work has influenced me quite a bit. He wrote a book called, um, um, what is it called? It's about cancer and water. I'm always bad at remembering exact titles, but basically he describes the, the etiology or the source of disease, the etiology of cancer as the, the <coughs> disintegration or the yeah, say the disintegration of the cellular matrix of the water of our cells. And if you restore that, not only do you prevent cancer, but you can you know, also cure from it. So yesterday I talked about someone, um, you know, these simple... Uh, cancer and the new biology of water. There you go. What would we do without a little... <laughs> So, a so this here. is like a new biology that is like an old biology. The old biology was more poetic. People weren't so damn plain and dumb that they needed things explained to them in great minutiae. But they could appreciate a song and a story and that was good enough for them. So I think in many ways we've devolved to become so plain and boring that we need everything explained to us in great detail. Because really, how does that change anything? If it exists as it exists, and we can't manipulate it mechanically as we think we can, that's the bill of goods that's been sold to us. If you figure it out, you'll get a degree, and you get a good job, and you get the house and the car, and you don't have to worry about taken away from us in that process is the imagination. It is Longfellow, I think, a British um, poet, yeah. yeah, writer, that said this about the Irishman. The Irishman is nothing but his imagination. Sounds like a knock, doesn't it? No. Right? If you're really paying attention, right? So it's meant to be a knock that, okay, you know, we've had a Victorian culture or wherever Longfellow was, was popular. Like, look at us, we're masters in the universe, small island, and through our techniques and mechanisms, we've, we've conquered yeah. nearly the whole planet. The it's largest. all under our thumb. And here's the Irish, you know, we, what he's also revealing under the cover of that, whether he knew it or not, is how the British, not the English, but the British, through their, through their pact with the Vatican, sought over centuries to overthrow Ireland and usurp the power such that they could, through the grand inversion, take all of this benevolence Look at all this richness. It's integrated across the globe through a system of benevolence and, and honor and respect and upliftment of the people. Well, what if we took control of that? Then we would have it all. So there's the greed from within the system. I don't know, maybe it was something from without the system. They have this, um, this uh, an aspect of history, uh, John Dee, look it up, D-E-E. -E. He had, he was a clairvoyant and worked, did the, you know, maybe that's where the term seances came from, but they worked with um, beings from the immaterial realm that in, in which they gained a great deal of knowledge and they used that knowledge as a leverage to build the British Empire and, and build all the structures of control 
from the British uh, East India Tea Company and all these things like this was all born out of you know, maybe even to a degree global banking system or a reiteration of what the Sumerians once built. But this is all supposedly coming from, this is in their own language, um, off-world or immaterial beings uh, out of greed and desire for control. So that inversion of the civilized world that we knew it, that was based on a culture of honor, respect, integrity, justice, and upliftment of the people as a whole, was corrupted and inverted and taken over by the few. And then latent within that statement by Longfellow is that, you know, Irishman is the lowly, uh, the basic interpretation is the Irishman, you know, you can't depend on them. They're so great, huh? Well, look what we built. They couldn't do that. But he's also speaking out of jealousy because look what they created, but they still don't have the imagination of the Irishman. That's something that they can't conquer. The heart and the imagination within. The Irishman can still dance a jig, sing a tune, tell a story, and make people laugh and cry. And the dry old crusty Brit is in there with their <laughs> library full of leather books, sipping on their high tea, and feel separate from all of life that they've conquered. Yet the Irish is there, right in the midst of all of it, with the cow dung, and and, and every you know simple facet of life and singing a song and, and dancing a jig. So I hear in that the the audacity and the arrogance as well as the pathetic cry to be a part of the thing that it is sought to control and keep. So I guess in a sense what else can we do but sit back and ride it out? <laughs> sit back and ride it out, but in the process, recover our own Turan. That is not going to be done for us. It cannot be done for us. I think awareness is huge. I think once you see a different paradigm, a different story, like awareness changes a lot too. You just, you know, people who are willing to open their eyes and see a different story, see a different thing, and just keep going along with what they've always been doing. Awareness is the fundamental first step to stop the train wreck. The way that, you know, every, if you study pathophysiology, Every disease process of the human being gets worse as it progresses, of course, but there isn't necessarily a breaking system inherent in the body once you've induced this disharmony. The pattern is further disharmony. So where's, where's the brake lever? It's the awareness. Where's the awareness come from? It's the heart mind. So it's that disintegration of the intellectual mind from the somatic intelligence via the heart that sets the body on a path towards uh, decay and disease. Do you ever listen to Zach Bush? A little bit. So much of what you say reminds me of some things that he's... Oh really? I, I wouldn't even know that. I yeah. haven't listened to him in a long time, but just a little bit. Interesting. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, and he's been criminalized. Um, just to speak on that for a moment, because what I've observed in... I haven't been to any herbalist gatherings in, in a few years, and I don't intend to go back unless someone, you know, heard what I was saying and invited me back. But for the most part, it would be antithetical. I guess I would need to first, um, you know, kowtow to every... Well, I won't even go there. <laughs> you know, twist my arm into some... It had nothing to do with asserting one's sovereignty, right? That would be threatening to people, right? That's, that's the jerk reaction. But um, people mentioned his work or brought it forth into those circles, he was thrown under the bus immediately because A, he's just selling products, and so that gives them a reason to, you know, thwart him or dethrone him entirely without, of course, listening to the message, critically thinking about the message, or having a heart, more importantly, that can listen and receive that message and see how it resonates with one's heart, which I feel is ultimately what he's attempting to do. I mean, any of us that are attempting to do that, to speak to people, may not be perfect in it, in terms of how what we really feel in our hearts comes through and can reach other people's hearts. I certainly try to do that. And so when people react to it, could be uh, an authentic dissonance there from one heart to another. Um, and if that's the case, then it's probably my words are not in alignment or not resonant with what's truly in my heart or I'm not yet in touch with what's in my heart or what occludes someone's heart from actually receiving the messages is intercepting them and misrepresenting them such that they never even reach the heart but they're reacting from a programmed place they're in a programmed state wasn't there a woman that opening one of the ceremonies that said there are two emotions, love and fear. Well, maybe it was a class, but, and that was, um, was like, wow, it's so true. <laughs> Simplifies yeah. it quite a bit. Right. I was looking up the word theory, like the etymology. Mm. You go back to the Greek theory. Yeah, usually it's true. When you combine that with conspiracy theory, it's like someone really uncovering the truth of a conspiracy. They all, they put it out there as in, you know, they're all wrong, they're just showing you something that's not really I mean, there's some etymology to that, too, that's really interesting. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah, what to think about it. Well, Theos is God, <laughs> and Re and Irish is king, so I don't know, uh, wow. God King of Truth, uh, Dru, Deru, that derives from the oak. So D and T were often used interchangeably in paleo languages, written languages. So we could say that the truth, the word truth, derives from the oak tree. And the Druids were those who observed the oak. Daru, Deru, Wid to see, Deruid, Daruid, Druid, the ones who observed or saw the oak. Odin is one of the ones that are really considered with the oak tree. Wise old oak tree. Yeah, there's elements of that that have seeped into modern day, like, you know, strong as an oak to have endurance, durar, 
to last, strength, durable, durable in Spanish. All of that relates to duro, which is the Irish word for open. So is Irish like one of the oldest languages then? In, I don't know. Some, I think so. I think um, in looking at this aspect of terrain, we, we're in a terrain where our, I think we're at the height of misrepresentation of who we are in the world that we live in and the promulgation of lies as is evidenced by the glaring examples of it right in our face that we've kind of reached the peak and kind of seen all that we can see of that and now you know we're going to descend into like the disintegration of this is my my prediction but that is to say that we've we've lived in the stench of foul lies and licentiousness of corruption of our history such that it's really difficult to discern what is true but um, sorry what did you say there was something that you said that I was was is Irish like the oldest right, so like the, when you're talking about going back to the ancestors is right, that a the, good place to go the language of of Ireland has been obscured intentionally and of course was made illegal to speak when the British introduced their penal laws. So the penal laws are very formative in our... So basically what, what's been done to the earth by the British Empire was first practiced on the Irish. And that came as a direct consequence of the first and only ever English Pope, or British Pope, Pope Adrian fourth or Adrian I guess it was and so he gave this papal writ that allowed King Henry the fourth I think it was to invade under to invade Ireland under some conjured up auspices so that was that and so Brit apparently the term British refers to the pact between the Vatican and whatever these entities were that settled in England, that corrupted the land of the Gael, Engaland, in Engle, in England, uh, through German, you know, because they all claim Saxon heritage. That's what they, if there's even such a thing as Saxons, I'm not sure if that's even true. That's very cloudy and murky. And you know what? You know, the Angles would have been another invading group from Germany that would have settled in England. That's where we get Anglo. I'm no Anglo. <laughs> Maybe people expected I am because of my skin tone, but I don't associate with what I understand Anglo to be, or Saxon for that matter. Anyway, even Margaret Thatcher supposedly is of German heritage, and that's not even her name. She's got a totally different name. Say again? A lot of the royalty are. Yeah, it's a W. Um, can't think of the name right now, but anyhow, so so much collusion and corruption and inversion that it's really hard to piece together. But there's so much evidence of their extended efforts to suppress and control Ireland. So when you're hovering over the target, right? That's where that's where the noise gets loudest. So what, what the noise is loudest over there. <laughs> so for, for centuries, that must have been the target. And um, the language, yes, the penal laws, as I was saying, were introduced in Ireland as a means of controlling the people and inverting the laws and corrupting the laws that the Irish people had that relate to ancient written laws and Sanskrit. So 
Sanskrit is how you say ancient writing in Irish. Sanskrit. So, script, script, scrive in Irish. So, ancient writing. Irish knew about that. There are, there are, in, um, in antiquated uh, books, let's say, scriptures or writings in India, detailed maps of Ireland and England. So somehow they knew, or people brought that knowledge from there. So a very close relationship between those two cultures. Indo-European language, you could say, is kind of like at the at the at the root of that tree. Perhaps a better way of saying it is Old Irish and Sanskrit. Just two different manifestations at different places on the earth that you know flourished in the lands that they did. Now there's a story that states that I don't know the Bible too well, but um, Catholics never cared much for the Bible. And that's how I was raised. Um, which is interesting, of course, because I don't go into that later, but Goidel supposedly was at the Tower of Babel. And he was there collecting the tongues of the people and assembling them into the most intelligible, cohesive language. So Irish is considered a Goidelic language. G-O-I-D-E-L-I-C derived from Goidel and from the Tower G-O-I-D-E-L is how I believe it's written in the Bible. Goidel. Oh, thank you. Here, I'll put it on the table. Appreciate that. Um, the Goidel purportedly assembled that probably from other Indo-European tongues at the Tower of Babel. And um, which is an interesting term. I'm not sure about Ba, but Bel was the the Babylonian term for the the, um, benevolent aspects of the sun. You had the benevolent and malevolent aspects of the sun. Uh, Bel or Baal on this hand of the benevolent, and then the malevolent was Moloch. Anyone's heard that? The benevolent was Bel, B-A-A-L. Baal, yeah, or Bel. That's where we get Beltane, Beltana, the fire of Bel, Belarus, Belgrade, Belfast. So B E L. Written in different ways, yeah. In fact, in the ancient scripts, vowels were emitted. So in different regions, people would express something slightly differently. So, um, presumably in Babel, so maybe that was a tower dedicated to. And so from there, Goidel presumably took that language and brought it, brought it to the West, or it had already come from the West. I think Irish probably relates well to whatever was spoken in, in Atlantis. Uh, and there's actually really interesting scientific evidence coming out of the Atlantic Ocean. In regards to Atlantis, I'll share that briefly in case the mention of that word, you know, spooks anybody out. <laughs> but a man named Randall Carl Carlson, who's a Freemason and an architect and um, an amateur geologist who's put in probably more dirt time than most real geologists have, he, uh, he's, he was on the Joe Rogan show and talked about... Um, 
there's a plate, the Laurentide crust, no, Laurentide's an ice sheet, um, uh, what is it called? There's uh, islands in the Atlantis, uh, the Atlantic Ocean. Um, anybody jump in and see what I'm talking about? There's not too far from there. Further north or further south? Closer to Spain, I think. Closer to Spain. Uh, I was going to go there once. Whatever the name of those islands is, it's that same crust or where two plates meet in the Atlantic Ocean. So there they found in a deep sea dig um, analysis of some soil. You can tell, you can measure exposure to sunlight in soil. So what they found was soil that had been exposed to sunlight for so many eons, but it's deep at the bottom of the ocean where these plates meet. Um, Azores. The Azores is the are the islands. I think the the crust or the the plate, not the plate, but that seam or something. Sorry, I'm forgetting those details, but it's not super relevant. But that they could test it and identify that it was exposed to sunlight, and more importantly, there were intertidal. There was a plethora of intertidal creatures. The remnants of those within that soil, stating that it was, you know, regularly exposed to the sun in a place where only these creatures are ever. So you could say, like, okay, maybe they didn't know that those creatures could also, or different forms of those creatures could exist at the bottom of the sea. There's all kinds of weird stuff that's down there. But what about the sunlight? And I forget what that technique is, but something that, you know, some type of, um, uh, you know, radioactive compound, or you can measure rate relative radioactivity. And it's not the cesium deal, but... You know, something about measuring the cesium 108 content or whatever and, and stuff for how long it's been out in the environment from since the, supposedly the creation of the, the universe or whatever. Anyway, I'm getting far afield, a little bit off my so out of my wheelhouse, but besides Irish, Italian on my mother's side. Okay. Yeah, so back in the belly of the beast, not too far from Rome. <laughs> well, when it comes down to it, we're all a big mix, right? So. According to, since we've gone down this road, um, or let me say, so I would say that the remnants of the Irish is old Irish is probably closely associated with the remnants of the ancient Atlantean cultures, if not also Hyperboreans, as the Greeks referred to them, was a probably Scan Scandinavian Arctic homeland uh, type of culture. So. The people moving up through the Nordic area and then coming back down to Ireland, the islands, and vice versa. So well, a lot England, of England was not within the last 10,000 years. England was connected to Scandinavia as a land bridge before the sea levels rose. So we've got that, and then Tirnanog is um, famous in, in Irish uh, folklore. Is it land to the west? And it's also considered in their cosmology the other world. 
I've presented that here before as a um, representation of the Celt a three-dimensional representation of the Celtic cross. If you take the Celtic cross and you stretch it out, you've got the four directions, and you've got the circle above, the circle below, and maybe a smaller circle in between, and all of the ohm connect through all of these lines from the four directions through the circle of life. And so the ohm are the sounds of the trees, uh, and the nature of these trees represents all of the articulations of creation, you could say. I realize I'm going all over the place here, but it's a, it, once you start to penetrate it, there's a lot of permutation. So this is, if, if perhaps if nothing else, um, a degree of evidence for what I'm referring to in the corruption of the truth of our heritage. And as it's been dumbed down and simplified, it's become relatively two-dimensional. Through its obscurity and its simplicity, it allows us to think that we are moving towards progress and evolution, when in fact we're moving away from... Um, I don't really like the term evolve because I don't believe in Darwinism. Um, yeah, we've... We, we were more... We were in a state of harmony, and now we're moving towards disharmony maybe to experience this end of the pendulum swing such that we could swing back in the other direction. And that relates to what the Greeks talk about as the great cycle, the golden age, the silver age, the bronze age, and the iron age. That we could be ending the iron age and moving into the golden age or out of the Kali Yuga, as the Indians call it, and into the Satya Yuga. Satya Yuga is the era of truth. Satya meaning truth. The Yuga is like a 26,000 year cycle. That relates to the procession of the equinoxes. I mentioned this yesterday, how at the equinox, there'll be a particular sign of the zodiac on the horizon at sunrise. And right now, that's nearing the end of Pisces, moving into Aquarius. That's why they say we're moving into the age of Aquarius from Pisces. So each sign of the zodiac will be in on the horizon at the vernal equinox for roughly 2,133 years, I think it is. So you add all those up times 12, it's around 26,256 years, something like that. Um, some have stated that's why the Sphinx, as a lion head, once as it once was a lion head, is facing directly the, the eastern horizon, due east, because it was built during the age of Leo. Just one example, which would date it back at least to 11,500 BC or 36,000 BC, but not what conventional archaeology says it is. So once you start to see a layer, a level of the corruption in our ancestry and our heritage and our history, you can start to account for a lot more possibilities. And one of the ways that I, I use, one of the metaphors that I use, especially for the time of about 10,500 years ago, which is the, um, the Younger Dryas period, if you look into, um, uh, uh, what's that term? I want to say plate tectonics, but it's an era of, of um, I guess plate tectonics would be a good term. Ge geology, maybe it's an epic of geology from about 9,500 uh, 9, to 12,000 years ago. The Younger Dryas period, just after the last ice age. 
uh, great cataclysms happened on, on the earth. That's the time when the megafauna disappeared. Supposedly hunted out overnight to the cat idols. Spears. Doesn't make any sense. No way that could have happened. In southern Arizona, not too far from where I live, in the San Pedro River Basin, there are two or three mammoth sites. I've been to one of them, close to another one with one of the guys who found them um, in the 80s. He was a young archaeologist at the U of A in Tucson, and the big rains had come and they'd got a report from a cowboy that all these big bones were sticking up out of the earth. So they went out there, and they not too far from the Mexican border, where the San Pedro River comes up, over the border, it's um, between the Huachuca Mountains and the Mule Mountains, and uh, they found two mammoth sites in that area. Um, like within a square mile, they found a mammoth kill site, um, um, dire wolf, um, giant armadillo, and then um, sloth, giant sloth. But there's also a giant beaver in that area and other mammoth kill sites. The majority of mammoth kill sites um, in the U.S. are in Arizona. The majority that are in Arizona are in the San Pedro Valley. Maybe that's just because of what they found. But what's interesting about that kill site uh, of the mammoth, they quartered the mammoth, removed the, removed the hindquarters, brought it like 100 yards down to where that tree line is. They had made a fire, they cooked it, and there was like four men around it, and then black ash covered everything. They didn't do anything else with the rest of that animal and the four men were found there, their bones underneath the black ash, everything was underneath the black ash. And so near to the kill site there's a arroyo head cut and so you could go down the arroyo and you can see the transects of the, of the soil and you can see the black mat they call it. This is all in, in um, Graham Hancock's book, America, before. Anybody familiar with Graham Hancock? I visited uh, a couple sites with him a few years ago when he was in Arizona, but he's a famous author that's written about ancient cultures, and he's made a case for there being a highly advanced, technologically advanced civilization from around this era. And so he cites a lot of work from the Comet Research Group that states that there's uh, titanium, um, compounds there and uh, what do they call them? They're nano diamonds um, and, and a couple other mineral compounds which I can't remember right now but are only found at nuclear explosions or comet strikes. And so the Comet Research Group states that the comet blew through, it blew across North America, it just ignited the great forests of North America and a lot of the megafauna that were there were killed and those that survived had nothing left to eat. So in a very short time they completely died off. There's an area in Nebraska that shows the signs of this um, on the ground. Um, elliptical um, excavations where the fragments of the comet struck and then also in Carolina the bays, the way that they're formed, I forget exactly what they're called, maybe it's Carolina bays, they have the exact same form at the exact same orientation from the trajectory of the comet and then more of it struck Europe as well. So that was, that was a transformative event that would have been within of course human time that would have killed out great populations of humans and would have traumatized humankind collectively. In 
fact, in Chi Chinese scriptures from the, um, I don't know when exactly, several millennia ago, they've delineated 12 different forms of comets in very simple, uh, at least a dozen, maybe more, in very simple drawings. But each of those comets, they said, brought destruction, disease, um, made the people hate life is one of the, the sentences that are translated. So they understood that comets brought disease and destruction to people. And what's interesting is that both the bubonic plague and the black death were both preceded by comet strikes. And this ties into the concept of panspermia, which means that organisms from space are brought to Earth. Now, does that mean that we're getting inoculated uh, with a new biome on the Earth? That the Earth is being altered, transformed, kind of like somebody hasn't drunk something from the Tibicos or the Tepachi, the water kefir grain, and now they've got a very different terrain on the inside of them that, that you know, they have a substantial period of adjustment to go through that maybe causes some upset, maybe even cleansing of their system. Bacteria do what's called a horizontal gene transfer where all they have to do is just bump into each other and they can transfer genes from one to the other. So if bacteria are coming from outer space that have never been on Earth before, it's in the air and the soil and the water and people are ingesting that, they're getting a, a, a genetic upgrade at least to the microbiome that may cause purging, may cause expelling of toxins from their body. It could be, you know, you know, instead of Microsoft sending you an upgrade via your phone or, or Apple, God is sending one down from, from a comet <laughs> from, with, with, with organisms from who knows where, from who knows what culture, what planet, whatever, what time frame that, you know, they've been up there in space. So that's another aspect of Tyrian. You know, we move out into the landscape beneath the sun with what we have to encounter what is before us. And if we're in a place and time when great transformation is to occur, then I would imagine that our path, should we be following it with courage and integrity, would be aligning us towards optimal, trans, you know, optimal capacity of our organism to transition this time. The more that we isolate ourselves from the earth, the more that we deter ourselves from meeting our path as we know it is within our heart and as it is transmitted to us from the sun above, I think the more uh, detrimental or painful that type of experience may be to the individual. So the better, um, you know, the more authentically we walk that terrain, the more in touch we will be with the seeds of knowledge our ancestors planted for us to reap the benefits of later in time. We don't really know. We're at the, I believe, at the cusp of a transitional time in humanity. Perhaps our ancestors very well saw and understood this, going back a few to many to several, dozens of generations ago. They could see this coming on the horizon. And so they said their prayers, they did their acts, they lived their ways that would set the groundwork for us to be successful at this time. And I believe we carry that within our body. Should we walk the earth with courage beneath the sun, that knowledge will become activated by and will be turned on. Will be turned on as the Irish knew. On was the power from the sun to activate within us. From the rays of the sun, as you walk your rayon, 
your path on the earth, the rays of the sun turn it on within you. Where do you go to learn all this like Irish terminology stuff? I have picked it up <laughs> lots of places. Far and wide. It's very that's the whole thing. It's been absconded and hidden. Um, if you go to modern Irish dictionaries, if you go what I found and you ask modern Irish people and you take modern Irish classes online how to learn, you know, like uh, um, what do I say, politically correct oriented, politically correct oriented, you know, Irish language classes, you're not going to get any of this. You get, I got blank stares from every Irish person I've ever talked, people that I've developed relationships with that at least had some kind of connection with the landscape and yeah, you know, traditional culture, but this is a whole other level. So um, had to really, you know, dig this out. But like I said, I went to Ireland, I did what I needed to do, I walked my path, and this started to come to me. Now prior to that, I was actively looking for it, you know, like every search term I could think of on YouTube or online and couldn't find it. But when I wasn't even looking for it, it just kind of like, it just came to me once I was in Ireland. So I'm a, from my own experience, I'm a believer of putting your faith in what you know to be true within your heart and having the courage to walk that path and trusting that, like all of the, the ancient stories tell us about the hero's path, the hero's journey. The hero's journey being walking your finding your terrain with courage that the support will be there you know in the darkest hour when you least expect it or or the yeah the assistant for that matter the, you know to hand you that special tool or that special weapon that you need to fight with the demons within and it's all portrayed as the demons on out on the landscape but ultimately in a vast majority of us it's the demons within and now the, the path as a consequence of the corruption of the, of the humanity and the human mind the path is laden with these demons such that one is bedfellows with them because they think they must be because they're nicer than the other ones but it's just they're just so abundant and or for the lack of company one becomes bedfellow so with them because you know there's nobody else around <laughs> whereas you really have to discipline yourself to stay true to what resonates with your heart even when it sounds pretty it looks pretty smells sweet tastes sweet but actually feels rotten and so we probably all subjected ourselves to those things to learn the lesson that we didn't follow what was what we knew to be true within, we just followed the image on the outside. And I think those are the you know, the more delicate types of battles with the with the devil, whereas we might be called to or whatever. The demons, uh, those are perhaps corrupted terms as a matter of fact. But that which that which seeks to dissuade us from following our path. I think it could be labeled as simple as that. And if we're walking our path with courage and integrity, we will be in our best position to be of service to others. And by doing so also, we are maybe not intentionally like doing Tibetan breathing exercises or <laughs> doing a specific liver cleanse or whatever. We may be optimizing the integrity of our organism simply by walking that path or activating healing 
powers within ourselves that any one of those therapies that any sort of master or healer or whomever could ever do for us because they can't walk our path for us. Many of the traditional cultures that walked the earth with courage and integrity didn't really have, you know, healing practices so, or, or healing techniques so much that you did on a daily basis because your life was geared towards being, being vital. Those settled, agricultural, um, more urbanized people had more diseases because of the corruption of the sovereignty of the individual such that they needed more and there became a medical priest class that arose out of these cultures thus they captivated the minds and the hearts of the people even more and here we are today third leading cause of death is properly prescribed and performed medications and procedures by the medical establishment if not the number one cause because number one is cancer number two cardiovascular disease and probably the vast majority of people i'm going to guess 75 maybe 98 percent of the people that subject themselves to the conventional cancer therapies are actually killed by those cancer therapies because they never restore the integrity of the, stru the structure of the cell the colloidal structure of the cell is never restored so the cancer just returns you can't take it out you have to give back what it needs which is the connection to the earth connection to the food connection to the water restoration of our terrain from our relationship with the sun restoring our connection to our ancestors and then the organism restores itself this isn't woo woo soft healing this is hardcore courageousness that the vast majority of people that subject themselves to these harsh so-called therapies actually don't yet have the self-awareness and the courage to embrace nor do the people that are giving it to them so that's why they have a hard time sleeping at night <laughs> and that's why you know they're on anti-anxiety medications and things because there's something that's not quite right that they feel but they haven't done anything about it that's what we're talking about to, that's where you become complicit, where your naivete transforms into complicity, where you have that feeling of oh, something's not quite right, but I don't know enough. You know, you're allowing your consciousness to be hijacked by the shame and guilt and so forth. That has, you know, so there's a level of certainly gentleness that each of us have to be have to be in acceptance with ourselves, have to be, um, we have to be present with the level of gentleness so that we can really be in acceptance, so we don't become overwhelmed by, you know, the, the, the weight of the guilt and the shame, or the fear, does that matter. But there's no other way than to go through that, you know, to even day by day accepting it as a practice of acceptance that okay that's within me but I'm not going to let it be all of me you know I'm going to walk also walk my path out on the earth with courage so that the sun can help restore the knowledge that my ancestors gifted me with so that I can return to a state of honor integrity and benevolence the next thing you know you'll be doing something for some for somebody else from a place of strength within yourself and you realize oh, okay actually I actually am There's not a finite end to it, but I would say probably uh, we're looking at an intensification of all of these things over the next few, several years.
and I imagine just for the fact that you guys are all here listening to me more than 30 seconds, you probably have a, a, a greater level of awareness of this within yourself and the world around you, because a lot of people would be, the vast majority of people in this world, probably many at this camp, would also be very uncomfortable to hear a lot of the words that I'm saying, because it directly challenges things that they still want to question Please. about your parenting okay because <laughs> <laughs> I have teenagers how how will you help her with the use of cell phones and um, I'm failing there technology <laughs> I'm failing there um, yeah because of my overwhelm with my work situation and being full-time parent solo parent half the time meaning that every other week caretaker for my daughter all by myself. I allowed her to remain in public school March 2020 for the rest of that year when it was all online and then the following year was all online. Even though they had a chance to go into school um, but you had to wear a mask and sit in a plastic box or whatever so I said no way we're not going to do that. So she stayed at home so I got her an iPad at, that, at the onset of that because I wanted her to be equipped and not take the garbage computer from the school that has who knows what else is on it and tracking. <laughs> I don't know, so I figured, whatever. However rational it might have been, but um, I did it as a nine-year-old and had put some limitations on it and time and so forth and only allowed certain apps on there, um, but also relying upon um, what I had instilled in her up to that point. And trust trust being uh, an important element of our relationship that um, if I ask her something about what she's doing that she can tell me with honesty what she's doing and that uh, if she doesn't understand what I'm asking of her to ask her questions but I see that the inherent addictiveness of that is something that is very difficult to put uh, an adult with that responsibility, let alone a nine, ten-year-old. So I'm, I'm seeing myself get frustrated with it when, in fact, I'm not giving the best examples, you know, because I've always got the excuse of doing work when I'm on there, which by and large is what I'm doing, but I can see that's a mixed message. So these events is one way I helped moderate that where it's like that's put away even though her mom's not around so it's an opportunity for her to having the device is a way to keep in touch with her mom when she's not here which I, I can understand why she needs that but at the same time you know, that's, that's not our priority in life to be connected to the device but to be engaged with all these things that I'm talking about them finding their own terrain you know to be let loose in this relatively safe but expansive environment to be engaged in so many ways that you know they're they're learning in a way that school could never teach them. So trusting in that was my first challenge. You know, being both my mother and my daughter's mother's mother were both in the educational system. So we were raised with concepts about you know what you know, meeting developmental requirements. And fortunately, my daughter does pretty well with that on her own, and she isn't like at risk or, you know, 
developmentally challenged. She's kind of oriented towards schooling. It takes to it pretty well. So, um, but nonetheless, I haven't. I, what I've done is take the pressure off myself to see that she meets these standards, but actually emphasize standards of uh, embracing her input on what interests her and also creating an uh, environment where she can get a well-rounded, um, get well-rounded exposure to various aspects of her being. She does Irish dance, she does violin, and um, and brings her, I bring her out to these, and then we do a lot of family stuff in terms of being in nature. Well, there there is one good story that I'll tell you as a parent of an 18-year-old. He just turned 18. He, when he was younger, he was he was he was magic. I mean, he was finding devices wherever he could, and we didn't even know he had them. And conjuring up programs, and and um, we put on all these parental controls, which he completely figured out how to get rid of. I mean, it, we were like. You know, and which taught me to let go of control that he had his own inner guidance system and it was ruining our relationship. And I was like, I'm not going to ruin the relationship with my son over a phone. So I started to let go and embrace him. So he just turned 18 and he said to me, Mom, I'm getting rid of this phone and I'm going back to a flip phone. He's so done with all these programs and constantly being dong and ding and ring and and so you know when I let him go he uh, you know two years later he figured it out on his own that he that it drives him crazy and is debilitating his who he wants to be his drive so I think it's important that you had a space in which you could feel like there was room to express that where I see a lot of people being that would be an asthma to say that you don't want your phone. Like, why? why? Why not? Like, this is technological advancements. You're going to fall behind. You can't do that. You know, so like, almost like he knew that you were there to understand that. And so there was a place to express that. Whereas I would imagine a lot of children that might have, something's not quite right here. You know, but nobody else, everyone's like this. So, you know, it, just keep doing it. Uh, I guess I should. And there's, you know, enough motivation to want to do that. There's probably just tiny spaces where you think I shouldn't, but oh, I really want to. <laughs> and oh, look, they're doing it too, so I might as well get back to it. So I think, yeah, providing the space where it's not emphasized and or it's encouraged or accepted to to normalize not not even going there is, I think, enough give them give them the, the tools to be able to see that you know figure it out on their own you know to ever have something to contrast it to whereas most I feel most don't my, my wife's daughters are in Waldorf school and they all I guess it's been changing as, as the intensity of our environment grows but when they were all really young they all agreed you know no devices until a certain age and Teen years and little to no t television at home and, and no no brands on the clothing and all kinds of stuff they agree not to subject their children to. But the insidiousness of the outside world's pressures have made it, you know, like you're saying, there there's so little contrast 
that is just normal. Like, oh, I wear a shirt and pants, so I watch TV. Like, it's just, I drink water, so I watch TV. Or I drink water, so I have a phone. It's as, it's as you know, as essential as that. It's as viewed as, if not more so. Like, oh, I forgot to drink water because I was on my phone for five hours. <laughs> I was playing video games for ten hours, so I didn't eat. So I'm, I'm guessing that we might be getting... Yeah, it's already past noon, so that went all kinds of directions that, that I think all um, spun back around to this essential relationship between human, our ancestors, the sun, and the earth. And I believe, as I stated earlier, when I made that statement, just to let that settle as, sim as simple as it is, Hopefully these words serve to encourage, if not validate, which all already feel inside, that there's a great deal of potency. Should we continue to come back to that and to rest in the trust of that simple relationship? That it can restore ourselves for all the pain that we've suffered from our ancestral lineage to our own time. And as we work through that pain, will allow us to regain deeper sense of self such that we restore the integrity of our organism and become more resilient to all the toxic influences in our environment, whether they're particulate matter in the sky, in the water, in the earth, or the thought vibrations that permeate our world that are fear-based and limited so that we forget about this relationship. So to continue to allow ourselves to extend and expand into this essential relationship with the natural world such that it resists these limiting thought patterns that promote disease and illness through the disintegration of the organism, the broader organism being earth, sky, and human integrated into one. So thank you everyone. I appreciate you. Thank you. Joining will, me today. will you teach a class on the ancient history that you that we kind of touched on with do you teach a class on I've done stuff like that but uh, I don't have anything scheduled. This was just my opportunity to stick it in here today cuz it how it related to that concept of Tiran and my relationship to that through my my ancestry. Of course there's more to have to share but um, yeah, another time. <laughs> yeah, this afternoon my wife and I are doing uh, a workshop on healing birth trauma <laughs> where she'll set the stage here discussing aspects of it through her work. She works with babies primarily, but we understand how, you know, that that's the fortune of those children and those families that have someone like her that can work with the babies directly out of the birthing experience. And she can also work with the family together to help that healing. But how each of us carries that, most vast majority of us do, from our birthing experience, especially in an institutionalized setting, and how that manifests in our adult relationships, um, the dysfunction that we carry through, and all that, how so, how that can dovetail into our or connect to our ancestral patterns of trauma. So we're gonna set a stage for that, and then we plan to go out and, if the weather's right, sit sit with the plant and see what what comes up for us. And um, once we set the stage of that awareness through the discussion maybe doing some exercises to help people feel, start to feel into that themselves, and then see what may be uh, turned up or processed through engaging with the uh, plants or trees uh, along the creek.
What time is her? That one, so I can listen to it later. <laughs> I think yeah, we'll probably do that in here. Yeah, we could do that in here. She's gonna come. But.